0: notes from Nash. Today's guest is Dr. Blaine Hollingsworth. Dr. Hollingsworth is trained in stochastic differential equations, probability, and lotka volterra equations. He teaches undergraduate calculus and statistics for engineering here at Vanderbilt University. We discuss the nature of mathematics, the toll of constantly thinking like a mathematician, and learning to question our assumptions. Thank you, and please enjoy my conversation with Professor Blaine Hollingsworth. first question is what is mathematics?
1: It's like numbers and stuff. <laughs> that's a wrap. Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's a good question. Uh, there's probably a lot of reasonable responses. I think somehow you're trying to describe general or abstract or universal kinds of patterns. hmm Connections between things.
0: And when we're usually talking about math and its definitions, a big question, which actually Cooper asked you in class one day, mm-hmm. was Is math discovered or created? And, w- and maybe even before you answer that, describe what the distinction there is and what the question means.
1: I guess uh, it's just the definition of what do you mean by invented or what do you mean by discovered. Right. I guess ultimately, in and of itself, I think we're inventing verbiage or symbols or names of concepts. We're recognizing concepts that are out there and and trying to identify them and describe them. So we're, I guess, inventing terms for that Mm -hmm. in a lot of ways. I don't know necessarily if math in and of itself is something that you discover, but maybe it is.
0: So... You're used, you're inventing signs and symbols to describe phenomena out there in a way.
1: I think that's fair.
0: Okay. Also, uh, if you don't mind, maybe pulling it a little closer. Just want to make sure when it's actually a full product, we we didn't get any audio distortion. But uh, um, w- you've described, you've told me before that you've taught a class on Girdle's theorem. Um, I did yeah. What is Girdle's theorem, and why is it important? That's one of
1: these gotcha questions. <laughs> Uh, Well, Gödel's incompleteness theorem, I don't know if you want to call it important or not, but uh, the upshot is people wanted to know if something was true, could it be proven Mm. uh, within some sort of system of mathematics? And they believed that it was true, that if it was true, you could prove it. That would be called completeness. Mm -hmm. For example, first-order logic is complete. If it's a true logic statement, you can prove it. And that's something that you can actually prove. So people thought everything should work that way. Gödel was able to come up with uh, a way to demonstrate that there was some sort of unprovable truth. Mm-hmm. By doing some sort of tricky self-referential thing. Right. Uh, technically, within a system. Basically, he's making a statement like, this is unprovable. Mm-hmm. So if it's true, you can't prove it.
0: Right. What is the grander implications of Godel's theorem about mathematics?
1: I don't know. Um, is it that big of a deal that there exists some technical unprovable truth? Mm-hmm. That's I'm not really sure. Right. Um, it's it definitely frustrated a lot of people. They had a lot of optimistic beliefs that we'll be able to use math to prove every truth. But right clearly we can't. But then again, are there some sort of truths that are like more practical somehow or truths that we actually care about? Right. Maybe the incompleteness theorem is not affecting those. It's not going to prevent us from solving some physics problem
0: perhaps. Right. You think it's just a minor uh, exception and doesn't really influence the rule or the principle of math itself? I don't
1: know. That's mm. a really good question. I don't know how deeply it disrupts something mm-hmm. um, from the philosophical side to the applied math side of things. I don't know where it really ends up causing right severe damage, Gosh. if at all. Mm-hmm. And, and
0: we've ta- and I know you've mentioned this before. Daniel Hofstrader's book Girdle, Escher, and Bach. I mean, wh- his kind of what what is his thesis in that in regards to Girdle, if you recall. He mentions it in a way, I think, to prove some sort of point about um, eternal recurrence, some sort of concept. I think his his basic premise there is, is that it, it, it does have a major influence on how we should view math. Um, and somebody like, um, I'm forgetting the, the guy who wrote uh, Principia, Mathematica, uh, Whitehead, and yes, Russell. Yes, yes, yeah. He would argue that it doesn't. So that's basically the the divide there. I think I, I may be completely butchering this argument.
1: Uh, I don't remember. It's been a little uh, while. Yeah, uh,
0: it's also a very notoriously I, difficult book.
1: Yeah, I'm sure that Hofstadter had some kind of uh, agenda for AI and trying to understand would would an AI recognize itself? Right, right right, 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 There was something like that. So yes. So when you when you do this sort of Incompleteness business, you're doing some self-referential things. Like mm. This statement is a lie. You know, that sort of paradox right. I- emerges. And then if you want to ask a question like, will AI be able to recognize itself? Mm. It has to sort of step out of itself to, to do that. Right, right. And that, that feels like the kind of things Goodall was doing in order to generate. Interesting, this. yeah. Uh, so Hofstadter is probably trying to <laughs> yeah. uh, make some realizations along those lines about how AI would work. Well, I also now know that I was mispronouncing his name for many years, so that's good. <laughs> it's, he could he could have made it easier on us all. Let's face it. <laughs> uh,
0: I love asking uh, mathematicians, what is game theory? Cause it's, it seems intuitive and simple until you kind of run it through its logical extent in different scenarios, and then I, I get muddied about it again and again. So maybe you could yeah. help me out. Uh,
1: game theory would be a great name for a tavern that has a lot of <laughs> billiards darts (laughs) that's actually yeah that's a great idea (laughs) i don't know i guess somehow you're doing some kind of math but there's an issue with others making choices or competing with you Mm. and so you have to analyze those choices that others could make Mm. and incorporate that into your analysis i suppose you could call that generating a strategy right I think there are a lot of different situations. Like, are you just trying to win a game of chess, for example, or is it I'm just trying to maximize some score, like the amount of money I'm making off of an investment? Right. But both of those things have people competing with me, apparently. But
0: right. Right. It's it's interesting because it's like an application, obviously. Mathematics isn't just theory, it has applications in the real world, but it's always interesting to find it in in a manner like that, where you're using it to influence public policy in a way, or or obviously economics is simple, but um, how we structure a jail cell and so on and so forth. But uh, I'm curious, what is your journey in mathematics itself?
1: How long you got? Um, (laughs) uh, Well, I guess went to college my freshman year it was pretty exploratory mm. I just took a bunch of classes and you know, I don't know what that class is maybe I'll try it out mm. but I ended up taking this sort of elective class and it was a foundations of proof class mm. and they were explaining why things are true and there were philosophy people in there along with mm. math people in there and they were just trying to understand what does it mean to prove something what does it mean to be true can we go through and do some logic and some set theory and And when I saw sort of the foundations of things I had been taking for granted as just facts without really understanding why, and then they were showing me why is it true and how to argue it, then you can start imagining, oh, now I can use these rules to start generating facts that I wouldn't have been able to understand. I can really be critical of all the things I'm seeing that are claimed to be true. And -hmm. I was really fascinated by that. I think that put me over the edge. Mm -hmm. And I just kept taking more math classes. I kept feeling after every math class I didn't even know about this thing and now I know about that thing I wonder what you're going to tell me in the next class right and I got kind of I don't know addicted I don't know right but it just kept being profound every time I took a math class so mm-hmm. I just never stopped doing it
0: that's interesting yeah so the class is about what is true and how do we prove something and there are so many things you're right we take for granted we don't ask sort of the mechanism behind getting to that truth. And mathematics is a very clear way of figuring out what a mechanism is, while philosophy is very ambiguous. Do you see some sort of connection between the two fields?
1: Yeah, you know, philosophy is a very broad term. Right. But really, you could think of math as applied philosophy in a lot of ways. Interesting. When you, gar- when you get really formal about the way that you speak and have a language, and you get into classes like your logic classes, Right. Symbolic logic. If this is true, and that is false, then analytical philosophy. I- yeah, uh, that that really is overlapping hard with math. Mm-hmm. You Need that logic to make to understand how sets work. You need to understand how sets work to start understanding how functions work, mm-hmm. and then functions are everywhere, as you know. Right. Continuous <laughs> functions, differentiable. Yes. You know, right. so it all kind of relates. Yeah, uh, to the more rigorous formal. Of philosophy.
0: So I take you're a fan of precision and speech and kind of grounding what you're saying in definitions.
1: Yes, generally, mm-hmm. um, people don't always speak with uh, s- super deep precision. Right, it can be frustrating sometimes. Uh huh. But also sometimes you you can glean what they're saying. Right. Um, like, if you see a typo in a sentence, you know what they meant. And right. So, you, you know, there's a little bit of natural error we all have. It's important, I think, to identify that error, but then kind of move on a bit from it. Is it really just a sort of superficial error, or did it have some deeper meaning? Right. If it had a deeper meaning, perhaps then you can start delving into it.
0: Right. The The late, great Wittgenstein. After <laughs> first, first, Wittgenstein went through his uh, analytical philosophy phase, where he was so structured, so precise. And then he went through this uh, sort of philosophical crisis in which he realized, or he thought he realized, let's say, that the boundaries of concepts are blurry, so precision isn't a necessity. Um, which, Wittgenstein, would, would you say you agree with more? I mean, I kind of glean that you would say the first, but not the latter. Because the, the, the argument <laughs> is, is that when you're very precise with language, you are sort of sacrificing the complexity of a concept. While when you are precise, you are being clear and you are building on concepts, but again, you're sacrificing the complexity of that concept.
1: Depends.
0: And yeah. I know we're getting very, very philosophical now.
1: Yeah, I don't, I don't know if, if you have a sufficient language, mm. you can describe whatever complexity.
0: I guess of course, yeah. I mean, right, right. In mathematics, of course, there's no, there is no sacrifice because that is the language itself. There's no. There's no way of going more blurry than two plus two equals
1: four. I guess it's just how how precise how much language do you want to have to describe this thing? Right Every facet, however complex it is, I can keep tacking on more and more terms. Right, writing more books and theorems about describing that very complex thing is just a matter of when are you drawing the line? When do you need to care? Yeah, uh, fair enough. Yeah, I've mean, practical people talking have to be super formal I'm <laughs> sure you do it all the time you say thanks all right. literally means like I don't understand what do you mean thanks yeah. I meant thank you but I was saying it in an informal way <laughs> oh okay now that I understand that I can use that shortcut right
0: so on. what is Matt's relationship to science
1: I guess somehow it seems like a lot of science ultimately needs language of mathematics to Speak precisely. Mm. Like, uh, how much fuel does this space shuttle need to go to the moon? A whole lot. That's not going to cut it. You know? Yeah. And then you start having to appeal to math and digging around and all these general patterns and how they actually connect to your specific right. question. Typically, since math is very abstract in general, you're going to be able to find a special case of it that will apply to yours. Mm.
0: I remember asking... Professor Marguerite this question, uh, which is, what is the essence of math? And he told me to, he didn't have an answer and it come back to him afterwards. And after an hour-long conversation, we got back to it. And I believe he still had a troubling time answering this question because there's so much going on in mathematics. So now I, I make it my goal to ask everybody, anybody I know who's a mathematician this question. <laughs> what is the essence of math? And you can interpret that however you yes. like. We're being blurry with the concepts on purpose.
1: Who says that there is an essence of math? Like, where is your sure. 17th leg? Right. You me a presumptuous question. Uh-huh. So maybe there isn't one at all. And I think the essence of math is to even ask the question, is there an essence of math, in fact, in the first place? And When you've done that, you're achieving the essence of math.
0: The essence of... So are you saying... The essence of math is to question presumptions and assumptions.
1: Perhaps. Something like that. I like that. Whenever Uh, you start (laughs) asking things like, what does that really mean or why, Uh, when you're really doing math.
0: And I see where the philosophy, there, um, um, the conciliance between the two. Yeah. Why should people understand math? The million-dollar question.
1: They don't want to. They don't have to. Knock themselves (laughs) out. I think they should. Do you care about things that math might describe, Uh like money? Because you need numbers and some concepts like how to calculate your interests Uh and so on. So you might want to know enough about math to do things like that. Right. Uh, Basically, anything you care about one way or another. Probably math is going to be ultimately involved in how to describe it and how to understand it. Your understanding will only be as good as your ability to describe it. Hmm. It's just a matter of what do you want to understand or not. If you want to understand something that really doesn't have that much to do with math, perhaps you can get away with understanding very little, but I doubt Hmm. it.
0: By the way, uh, I just recalled that Margalit's answer was actually the essence of math is beauty, actually, which was a surprising answer. That's why I keep asking people that. But uh, what what would motivate you, what has motivated you um, to keep sticking to math is it, again, going back to that idea of it gives you answers and makes you question assumptions and understand where those assumptions come from? Or something else?
1: It's one thing I think math demands perfection. Mm. Of you and we're not perfect. So it kind of keeps me trying to be perfect. Interesting. It keeps you sharp. feels like it makes me a better person trying uh-huh. to think mathematically. Um, I do also think that it, Helps me understand everything around me better. Like if you can understand some crazy math, then it's probably not difficult for you to do other tasks in your life. Understand
0: a New York Times article.
1: <laughs> so, uh, I feel like it does, as you're saying, keep me sharp. Mm. In a lot of ways. It's also fascinating to uh, keep thinking about it. Every time you think about it and you see yet another connection or another pattern, it's it's always always just fascinating to keep making mm. more and more recognitions the more patterns you see the more you can see hmm.
0: when you say it makes you a better person are you referring to it in the sense that it, it like we said it keeps you rationally sharp or do you see that bleed over to other parts of your life
1: probably more rationally sharp okay <laughs> i don't know if it means like i'm gonna go donate, donate all my money your, to charity yeah I don't, <laughs> think, I don't think math is gonna make me do that but. uh it would help me consider doing that and what the ramifications would be, in
0: a uh, <laughs> I guess. Fair enough. Who's the most influential mathematician?
1: I don't know. Um, I guess somebody very historical, Euclid or somebody. Um, it's hard to argue that people like Newton and Leibniz were not sure super influential by inventing calculus. Hard to argue that really great mathematicians like Euler and Gauss are not super influential. Um, it's tough, tough to quantify.
0: Actually, you brought up uh, calculus, and I'm in your calculus class, so I have to ask what what is calculus? What is calculus? Yes, I still don't know.
1: <laughs> calculus. Know what the word calculus means? No, See, I flipped it back on you. I oh yeah, question. yeah, I know. <laughs> How you like it? Uh, <laughs> it's it's Latin for pebble. Okay, idiomatically, like a little tiny amount. Basically, calculus is the study of little itty bitty tiny amounts. So, a derivative, for example, is a little itty bitty tiny change. Oh, it's fascinating. Over a little bitty tiny yeah. change in y.
0: That's great. I, I When I think about calculus, I think about movement. Um, It always seems like you're calculating some aspect of movement. But the fact that you said pebble and little, that makes a lot of sense. You're getting, like, samples of things. and Try to use that sample to figure out some characteristic of the larger thing. That's fair enough.
1: You usually can't. Uh, You usually are just focusing on one instant of time. Okay. One little tiny change in time, like a nanosecond. How fast did this thing move in a nanosecond? second. And that's sort of like an instantaneous rate. Mm -hmm. You care about things happening at some instant in time. That's how you can use calculus and derivatives to start describing that. Mm -hmm. Even in future calculus, they'll do things like integration. But you have a weird object and you'd like to understand the area or volume of it. Right. Like how much gas will this crazy gas tank hold? Uh Um, So what you do is you just think about it like A whole bunch of little tiny cubes or a bunch of little tiny rectangles and then you take the area of all the little rectangles or the area of all the little cubes and you add all of those up there's a way to do that
0: i love that definition um i'm gonna ask you the easiest question uh, of the day oh good Uh, what is the meaning of life
1: that is the name of the other
0: tavern that i'm gonna open up (laughs) Right next to game theory, mm-hmm. yeah.
1: Uh, I don't know. That's a good question. Again, mathematically, who says there is a meaning?
0: <laughs> this is very interesting. I think I'm going to the bottom of a, 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 a mathematical nihilism. No. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. The essence of
1: math, pure nihilism. <laughs> yes.
0: That's it. R- would that be your answer? Because that's uh, that's yeah. a very, that's a bold answer.
1: If there's a meaning to life, perhaps. Uh-huh. Might be trying to do your best to identify what makes you happy. Something that you can look back on and feel good about. Hopefully with a minimum of pain to others. <laughs>
0: uh, <laughs> it's hard to say that as a math professor. <laughs>
1: There may be some short-term pain, but there's going to be some. Right, time. right. <laughs> like math, learning math is the worst, but understanding math is the best. Re- so I, yeah, yeah. yeah, Always like a three-fourths of the way through a math class, I was always like, what am I doing? Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I must hate myself. And then after it's all said and done, I'm so glad I did that. And now I have learned so much.
0: Do you believe something can be true outside the realm of mathematics or science? And then now you can ask me, "What do you mean by
1: true?" Yeah, and pretty much I'm just gonna say, <laughs> "I don't know what you're talking about." There's a there's some issues with defining truth. Right.
0: Uh, yeah, but define it as you may. I'm
1: trying to think about what.
0: Well I, I, the reason why I ask you is because when I ask you what is the meaning of life you immediately said who says there has to be a meaning of life which um made me tongue in cheek but in a way it's it's kind of going to this point that what sort of what do you what sort of hard evidence are you bringing that this is a legitimate question is that fair enough
1: Yeah um I found that a lot of time in philosophical questions like this pretty much if you say there isn't one then that just terminates the conversation immediately so why don't we suppose that there is one and then argue about it uh-huh. uh usually you're just trying to think about things right you're not just saying i don't believe there is one the end you know,
0: <laughs> uh, right that's true actually yeah cuz if it was <laughs> that, that is funny yeah so then w- w- what is the sort of reasoning behind the the way you approach that question. and I know we're doing a meta move now, but like what I'm trying to understand the reasoning, how
1: I approach the question of,
0: of the meaning of life. What is the meaning of life? Yeah. Like the first thing you said was, who says, who right. I'm cu- trying to get to the bottom of that.
1: Uh, it's just the math, mathematician, hypercritical. Uh, uh-huh. I guess I, it's just maybe reflexive or experience. There's mm. all the time you're asking a question is what's the biggest number well, there isn't one. So you might have asked a question that doesn't have a real answer. S- so all the time you're trying to think about things mm-hmm. that were presumptuous inherently. I see. And it's easy to do that. So then after a while you start even asking, before I say what I- is it, is, is there one? Could there be one? How would anybody know? Interesting. sort of a refining of the way I think about questions in general from math experience.
0: This is kind of breaking my brain a little bit because typically like, this is very interesting because usually I think we're all very satisfied and happy to just kind of run on presumptions and say whatever we'd like to say about things. And so sitting with this a little bit. Um, so maybe I'll try to reformulate this last question again and you can tell me if I did a good job or not. Sure. But So then is there a way to talk about or prove things, big concepts like let's say God or which political policy is okay or correct without having any sort of evidence prior to it, any sort of concrete evidence? Is it okay to run on presumptions and prove something? This is, I'm really just messing with words right now, yeah. trying to get at it hopefully.
1: So maybe the you can make assumptions. Uh-huh. Assumptions are like that is true. Sure. Why I'm assuming this and then from this assumption we can make conclusions. Yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. So can we you come can o- make
1: suppositions? Uh-huh. So typically suppositions are more like temporary hypothetical things. Uh-huh. So it kind of depends. They're, they're really amounting to the same thing. We're taking something as fact and trying to do something with it. I guess is that what you mean? Yes, yes. So if I don't have any foundation upon which to base anything, it's sort of difficult to infer or deduce things from it. Mm -hmm. I'd have to have some kind of basic evidence or some kind of basic fact from which to begin. Like something even like we exist and can communicate with one another. Okay, fine. Is that some sort of evidence or place from which we can start generating information to have evidence for something, or even prove it, depending on what you mean by prove.
0: Uh-huh. Okay. So, in summary, then, it's nearly impossible to prove something outside the realms of science and mathematics? I don't know.
1: That's what you mean by what's proof to you?
0: I have a thesis statement, and I'm bringing in evidence and saying that this is true, or this is correct.
1: You have a sufficient amount of evidence to uh-huh. uh, decide it's true. Mm-hmm. Well, that's basically what statistics is all about. Sure. I, what is enough evidence for you? New, uh, we'll get down to the numerical nitty gritty of that and establish some sort of numerical, like I flipped a coin a hundred times and 99 of them were heads and only one of them was tails. So mm-hmm. can I conclude that the coin was weighted and not fair? Well, okay, sure. <laughs> but then where do you draw the line? 60, 40, 61, 39? Right. And then you say, well, some number will convince me and some number won't convince me, and then you can go run all the numbers and take that as proof or insufficient evidence to prove. If you wanted to do that, I'd say you're still stuck in the realm of mathematics. Mm-hmm.
0: Some people, for example, presume or assume based on either gut feeling or tradition or culture that something like a god exists Mm -hmm. is that feasible in your world view
1: i guess again it'd be if god doesn't exist okay then there's nothing to talk about or do And Uh if you want to say god exists then okay let's take it from there i I see sort of the same thing so if if you keep going i wonder if it's sort of there was a time in history where you know people didn't really understand what was going on like oh will the sun come up today? I don't know. Let's bang these two rocks together and see <laughs> if that's what is necessary for us to figure out if the sun will come up today or not. And nobody knew. Mm-hmm. Like there is <laughs> As far back as you want to go, there's a lot of stuff nobody knew anything about and was trying their best to, to understand. Right. So coming up with something like the God of the sun comes from these two rocks or something like that, whether you use the word God or not, mm-hmm. it's, it's an attempt to understand what's going on, one way or another. In mm. a very, you know, from a very long time ago, there wasn't any other associated concept. So you come up with a concept like, okay, there's a thing called a god, mm. whatever that means. Right. Some power beyond my understanding. Right. Something like that. Right. Right. And then maybe
0: this is full circle to the discovering or created argu- uh, discussion, but isn't there something to be said about the strangeness of assuming that something like two plus two equals four is a thing without there being some physical reality to prove that like it's an a priori truth and we just assume it and we run from there and if we're talking about
1: what uh, you (laughs) what uh, you do is you make some axioms sure uh, and they have to be something so just fundamentally believable that if you don't believe this, I guess we can't really have a conversation anymore. (laughs) What you'll do in math is you'll say, okay, there is a first number. Uh You can call it whatever you want, like one. Then you say every number has a number that comes after it. One's successor. You give that a name. Two. Two then has a successor. It is the successor of the successor of one. And we'll call that three. We'll just give it a name and so on. And then you define addition by saying you just keep making that many more successors. Mm. You say the successor of, this of of one is two, the successor of one again, and then you call that four, and then you just understand what plus is like an iteration or a concatenation of successing. And then it's just the name of the phenomenon from right. the axiom that we agreed upon for just what counting should be for us. Mm-hmm.
0: And maybe I'm making a point here, maybe not. But even at, even in math, a a realm of certainty at the very bottom of it, you have to assume something based on no evidence.
1: Yeah, there has to be. That's what axioms are. Right. Somehow it's they'll say these kinds of phrases like self-evident truth. So now you're getting into that Goodellian right uh, thing. But you got to start somewhere. And sure. It is somehow a little unsatisfying to you have to make something up in the first place to to go from there. Mhm. Uh, but you got to.
0: So that. is it completely preposterous to then take that sort of logic of axioms and apply it to larger concepts, like perhaps love or God and so on and so forth?
1: I don't think so. Um, you could decide the axioms of love are whatever they are, and mm-hmm. then you could try to have whatever logic or whatever kind of a rule you want to use to gain information from those axioms and, in a way, just prove love theorems mm. and see where it gets you. Uh, I don't know of any math like that, <laughs> I, don't know. I guess, try to do an example, like a real simple example. some axioms that with some logic clearly make right statements that could help you understand whatever love or <laughs> whatever right, you're trying right. to
0: study might be and don't worry this is edited so
1: don't edit it. Oh, so i can just curse freely yes yes <laughs> <laughs> i i don't see why not right I, right i don't have a good example no yeah fair enough one right,
0: right. Okay. Well, I think we did sw- sweep the floor there. Um, was there anything else you wanted to talk about or something that stood out? I don't
1: know. You're the one asking all the questions. Right,
0: right. I'm just <laughs> trying to... Um, what, uh, well, this is... I should definitely ask this. Why is math hard to understand?
1: Maybe it just goes back to... It demands perfection and Mm -hmm. we are not perfect it's just can you get more perfect right be better at not making mistakes Uh, you you know we're always making mistakes especially trying to do math Mm -hmm. so that's what makes it hard to learn also it's it's pretty unforgiving like have you seen this once yes well then let's move on well maybe you didn't really understand exactly what was going on at the time right I think it's virtually impossible because you don't see why you care about a fact yet because you don't know how it's going to connect to other facts. So it's almost like you're constantly waiting for a conclusion that you're never going to get because Mm -hmm. even if you do, here's fact one. Okay, I I can sort of take it at face value, but I don't see why it's useful yet. Okay, well, here's how it helped me understand fact two. Oh, I see, fact one now makes a lot more sense to me because I can take for face value Fact two, but now fact two is still not really clear in my mind until fact three. Now I see why fact two was important. So you're always sort of at the vanguard of not really understanding as well as you could the math.
0: To stay on that logical line the whole time requires so much mental energy, is another thing I've noticed. It's like you have to stay on the rope while you're in the waves, and when the water gets really rough. You got to still keep holding on. And that requires a level of energy that is very training. Um,
1: yeah, it's, it's hard. Uh, you're right. You have to really get immersed in it. I've noticed sometimes when I was really thinking hard about math, I, I virtually had to decompress, like mm. go back to human being mode from math mode. Mm. Um, it's kind of strange. Right. You have to take a lot of breaks if you're really doing a lot of mathy thinking because your brain will kind of just run down Mm. it takes a lot of mental energy you have to pretty much every hour I would at least take five ten minutes and just go walk around Mm. and try not to think just like pouring water on a wet sponge it's (laughs) not going to to accomplish anything
0: (laughs) describe to me that mode that you just said when you're in an intense math and you try to step out of that what does that mode feel like
1: is very robotic you know. yeah it's sort of like when you say what's the meaning of life and i go who says there's a meaning right of life? <laughs> do you mean there is a meaning what do you mean by life what
0: i caught you while you were grading probably <laughs> but
1: when you when you are when you're doing that yeah. a little bit too much Like, what's up? What do you mean by up? Up is a relative concept. (laughs) Like, when you start talking, like, you're still in this math. Those
0: are the conversations at the Game Theory uh, Tavern.
1: (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Go to Meaning of Life Tavern. Don't go to Game (laughs) Theory Tavern. You'll you'll start doing that, you know. And then you'll realize that you're being kind of not a human being. Uh, Sometimes it just takes some time to allow your brain to diffuse or decompress. I don't mm. know Even you do any work, it doesn't have to necessarily be math. Sure. Doing a whole lot of work at a job or something, get done with it, there's transition. Sure, yeah.
0: Do you ever feel like a flow state when you're doing mathematics, where time becomes irrelevant and you seem to sort of step out of yourself? Yes. Is there a particular type of mathematics that does it quicker for you to get in that state? Or is it just, what is it that does it for you? Is it writing the theorems?
1: I don't know, like I...
0: Is it grading?
1: I experience that when I do things like play board games or video games or read books. Uh huh. Uh, You sort of lose yourself, right? Time's just passing, and you're like, "Wait, what happened?" An hour just went by. Uh I don't know exactly what it is. I don't think it's unique to math, right? Yeah. Whatever cerebral activity I've engaged myself in, I can lose myself in that pretty easily.
0: Do you have Do you have a favorite book of all time?
1: situational I guess <laughs> there's a lot of really good books out there it's hard to pick maybe
0: one right now and right what does right now mean yeah, but I'll let you decide I was, I right now
1: it's already passed <laughs> right we're in a different now now uh, 100 years of solitude is a really good book Ooh. uh Ender's Game is a really I don't know if it's a really good book, but I keep trying to get people to read.
0: Ender's Game? Or oh. Ender's Game, yeah. You know that one? Yes, yes. I thought you were saying that was the book you're trying to get people to uh, read
1: now. Well, yeah, generally. Yes. Uh. I've been trying to get people to read First Blood by David Morell. <laughs> First uh, Blood. Which is the Rambo. Oh, book. wow. Really? Yeah. I, uh, I had a friend who he's like, I don't read books. And I was like, read this. And then he read it in a day and he came back to me he's like do you have any more of those books so i kept giving him wow interesting i I probably like more niche books weird disturbing kinds of books horror books things like that
0: what are some examples of that i don't
1: know uh, house of leaves
0: i've heard of that is it the um like an avant-garde style book
1: yeah yeah it's pretty fair (laughs) yeah yeah, yeah. it's it's definitely uh, definitely something else (laughs) people can get intimidated by it but if you stick with it i think it's pretty rewarding okay unique kind of book but i mean i i would do math and when you do that all day and you come home the last thing you want to do is read a science book (laughs) yeah right so i would want to read trashy books a lot fair Uh, enough i would read uh, destroyer books (laughs) i don't know if you know what's yeah uh, i'm not you know, movie Remo Williams. The adventure begins. No, it's kind of a movie about these destroyer books, but it's basically, it's it's about a guy who's a secret enforcer slash assassin for a very secret branch of the government that's dealing with criminals that can't be prosecuted within the confines of the U.S. Constitution. <laughs> he has learned the ultimate martial art from this millennia-old house of assassins. <laughs> like, he can he's pretty much ridiculously uh, super-powered. Uh-huh. And it's very tongue-in-cheek also. Right. It's a little bit satirical when you read it. So I just loved reading this. Uh, like, he can just hang onto an airplane, and it could fly <laughs> to, you know, another continent. He's hanging hang it out <laughs> with one hand, like, you know. Right. <laughs> kind of just silly. But you, those are fantastic books. I read those.
0: Those are, some very, yeah, those are very niche recommendations. Yeah, I, I yeah. love niche book recommendations because I'm tired of hearing uh, The Great Gatsby, which is a god-awful book. And I, didn't, I, I didn't much care for it. Yeah,
1: I was in 10th grade, and they forced me to read it. So maybe if I had decided to read it, <laughs> maybe if I were a little more mature, I would have liked it a little more,
0: but I don't know. I don't see myself ever liking that book. But um, do you have a favorite movie of all time? I feel like that's an easier question. One that you keep coming back to.
1: I can think of movies I could literally watch again and again and again. Uh-huh. Sure. Uh huh. Sure. Yeah. A while ago, I used to watch a lot of kung fu martial arts types of movies. Interesting. So I would always try to get people to watch specific ones <laughs> in the same way. Okay. Like Jackie Chan's *Dragons Forever* or uh, *Iron Monkey* is a really good uh, kung fu movie. Yeah. Story of Ricky. Ricky O. Oh, I don't know if you ever saw that. No. One. Uh, Surreally violent. <laughs> <movie>. uh, <laughs> I think there's a lot of movies that are just you could watch them again and again and again, and they're just funny, like mm. trading places. For yeah, example. sure. I could watch that movie twice in a row and yeah. laugh every time. Yeah.
0: I have a feeling you would en- you would enjoy something like Apocalypse Now.
1: It's a good movie not something I want to watch twice in a row. Uh, really? Okay. <laughs> fair enough.
0: But it is It is actually on the more darker side. Um, not funny at all. <laughs>
1: I could probably watch Full Metal Jacket twice in a row before I could watch Apocalypse Now twice
0: in a row. Oh, right, right. Full Metal Jacket. Yeah.
1: Well, oh. I read the book for that, by the way. It's called you, The Short Timers. It's
0: for... Full Metal Jacket. Really? It was based on a book, The Short yeah, Timers.
1: Like, it's very tersely written, like a journalist would write, and it's very... It's a very short book. Uh, unlike the movie, it's about 20% of it's in training and 80% of it is... In war? Yeah. Interesting. It's, there's a lot of extra stuff in the book that's not in the movie
0: anymore. Right. That movie is very strange and that Stanley Kubrick is an <laughs> even stranger person. So <laughs> <laughs> um, speaking about perfection. <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah, um, And then... I thought you were actually referring to the book for a now, which is part of, of darkness,
1: which is, I cannot read that. I keep trying to read it. Really? And I go, man, what what was happening on the previous page again? And I just, I don't know why it, it feels
0: like you're waking up from a nap, like a long nap and you're just tired. The whole, the whole book feels that like that. So it, it's one of those rare cases where the movie is like almost a hundred times better than the actual book itself. Um, I think Fight Club's another example.
1: I was that. about to say that. <laughs> Yeah. thought Fight Club was a better movie than a book. Yeah,
0: yeah. yeah. Well, Professor Hong's wrote this was a great conversation. Uh, my mind was broken and put back together. Good. I'm glad the latter happened and the former. Um, I learned, and it was fun. There are not many things there are both, so thank you very much. Well, that's a wrap. Thank y'all so much for joining me this week. This was a fun conversation. It was an unorthodox conversation, but that's what I loved about it. Uh, Hopefully you will join me again next week for another interesting, intriguing, and hopefully surprising conversation. Thank you.